Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Volume. Just a reminder that you can catch me recording this podcast live on AMP. AMP is the new live radio app that lets you call in and chat with me in person while I'm recording. Get the app on Apple's App Store and make sure you follow me at Chris Mannix to get notified when I go live. This is Boxing with Chris Mannix. Oh, somebody punch him in the face. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion. Hosted by SI's Chris Mannix. That was my moment. Now with interviews, analysis, and everything going on in the world of boxing. When you have talent, you are given another chance. Here's Chris Mannix. This is Boxing with Chris Mannix, part of the Volume Sports Podcast Network. Let me first start by apologizing for the show posting a little later than usual on Wednesday. Had some travel issues coming back from Denver from the NBA Finals on Tuesday, but it did give me time to watch the press conference for Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford. The first time these two have been face-to-face since the announcement of the July 29th fight. Here's a little bit of the interaction from that press conference. Yes, once again, I will be the first male boxer to actually capture the welterweight champion in two divisions, and that would solidify me as the greatest fighter of this era. Definitely not, man. I'm not going to lie. Tyrant got the best matchmakers in the business. You ain't fought nobody, man. You haven't beat anybody undisputed at 140. You fought at 135, and who you fought at 147? Even you fought Sean Porter. Even Sean Porter said, "What did I do to Sean did, Porter that you?" Sean do? Porter said, even said he, did, he did not train Porter like he should. He didn't do the things do. that his daddy told him to do. What are you, you talking about? You even his butthurt. daddy said it. Even his you, daddy said it. You, you butthurt that I got the. Even his daddy said it. You butthurt. Even Kel Brook, he was already broken. So was he broken when you fought? About? No, he wasn't broken. How come he I broke, broke the other eye. He came off of I broke the other eye. Yeah, that's how I got broke. That's how I got broke. He came off a stoppage. What does it matter? He came off a stoppage what, and then he fought you. Months, what does it what does it matter? Months prior. What so, does it matter? So was he broken or not? No, he, he wasn't broken. No, he wasn't broken. Yeah, you're right. You're right. What are you talking about? I had the same surgery he had, and what happened? 
So what they say about you then? You fight me then? I'm going to break that line. <laughs> so what, what they say? So I'm broken then, right? Well, you're broken. You're going to be broken July 29th. <laughs> yeah, we're going to see. You're going to be broken. So it, that, yeah, that begs the question, we're Aaron. See. Oh, I'm ready for that. I'm so ready for that fight. Bring on July 29th. Well, we have a great show this week. Chris Algieri, former junior welterweight title holder. He will be joining me on the call in New Orleans this week when Regis Progre defends his 140-pound title against Danielito Zaria. Uh, going to get his thoughts on that fight. Also, an excellent past weekend in boxing where Jaime Munguia passed his first real test against Sergei Derevchenko. And Teofimo Lopez rose from the proverbial ashes to batter Josh Taylor and win a second title in a second weight class in what was a one-sided fight. Uh, a little bit later on, Regis Progre himself will join me to talk about his fight. Also want to get his take on Teofimo's performance. And if Devin Haney could move up to fight him, could move up and wait to fight him in his next fight. But first, as promised, Chris Algieri, the former 140-pound title holder, he'll be pulling double duty this week. He'll be on Pro Box TV on Wednesday night and Saturday on DAZN. And he joins me on the show. Chris, I don't know how much of the Spence Crawford highlights you caught on social media, but uh, any takeaways from the first time these two guys came face to face? Yeah, I mean, I, I take away that they both have a lot of respect for each other. They're both professionals. They're both media trained. They're 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 doing their little proverbial jabs back and forth, getting people a little a little interested. But it it's been very respectful. I think I think that's understood. But w- where these guys are at in their careers and uh, and the magnitude of this fight, and I think it's good. I think it's a good thing. It, it's it's more of a throwback. It's a throwback type fight, and I think the way they're treating each other in these press conferences is more of a throwback where they're showing each other respect, but they're still got their little clever digs in there. So I, I like the promotion so far. I, I was interested to see how physically they look very similar. Um, Terrence mm-hmm. Crawford at this point is now a, a full-fledged welterweight. He is a 147. And I, I look at Spence, and he was a little bit taller than Crawford, but then I look down, he's wearing kind of shoes, a little lifted him. So when these guys meet on fight night, they're going to look a lot more, you know, lots more similar physically than maybe they would have a couple of years ago. I mean, do you look at that as being a factor that Crawford's had this many years to become a, a real welterweight? Oh, absolutely. I mean, two years ago, you asked me this, I was all Spence. Now I, I really don't have an answer who's going to win this fight because I just didn't think Crawford was was a full-grown welterweight at that time. And Spence is huge for the weight class. I mean, he's, he's bigger than literally everybody. But Crawford has grown, fully grown into the weight class. I believe he walks around between 175 and 180. He's posted photos like that. I've heard people tell tell me that from from inside. Um, so he, he yeah, he's a, he's a true welterweight. He is 100% knockout percentage at welterweight, although not fighting the, the same caliber of guys, but still, that's that's impressive nonetheless. But yeah, no, this is this is a a, a pick 'em fight, especially when you look in hindsight with uh, Spence and his two car accidents and a torn retina. It, it's it's definitely brought down the the physical differences between the two to near. I mean, I would say, like you said, equal levels. Yeah, somebody brought up. Danny Garcia, or at least, no, somebody brought up Spence, uh, Crawford's counterpunching to Spence, and he mentioned Danny Garcia and how he handled Garcia's counterpunching. It feels like they're two different types of counterpunchers, though, right? Like, Danny fires off with that left hook and picked up a lot of knockouts at 140, but mm-hmm. above 140, Danny has not been the same type of fighter. Crawford, his counterpunches come from everywhere. I mean, it just seems like you have to be on the alert uh, of every angle he might throw them from. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Danny's a very tricky counterpuncher. He throws punches with you. Um, he's got a great chin. That's one of the reasons why he was always such a good counterpuncher because he doesn't mind getting clipped a little bit if he's going to crack you with his shot, even if you're a bigger puncher. Um, so, yeah, different in that sense where Danny's more punching with you, whereas Crawford will set up the counterpunches. He'll bait you. He'll pull you in. He'll let you reach, and then he'll pull out, and he's got those super long reach. He's you know he's listed at two inches shorter than Spence, but he has a two-inch reach advantage. The guy has extremely long arms related to his height, so he's very much a bait. And, and pull kind of counterpuncher differently than Danny, who's a punch with you guy. I mean, actually, Danny has a really short reach, which is why he's actually pretty good at, at punching in the middle. So very, very different types of counterpunchers physically and, and stylistically. Oh, it's going to be great, though. It's going to be great to see that oh, yeah. fight. I, I'm I mean, super excited. Although it's, it's funny, like I see on social media where people are like, this will settle the argument over who is the number one pound-for-pound -pound fighter in all of boxing. And I'm thinking to myself, well, right around that time, we've got Stephen Fulton and Noya Inouye fighting at 122. And the winner of that fight, especially if it's Inouye, probably has a pretty yeah. good case as well. So unfortunately, nothing will get settled when it comes to the pound-for-pound pound de debate, which is... Well, I don't think anything will ever get settled when it comes to pound-for-pound <laughs> because pound, it's just it's just such a debatable hot topic. And that's the whole point of why we like it because we can just go back and forth all day and forever, no matter what. Yes, yeah, so you're either a genius or a moron when it comes to pound-for-pound pound oh, rankings. That's, that's boxing. <laughs> just the way it goes. <laughs> um, all right, let's start with last weekend in New York. Teofimo Lopez... Uh, it is third fight at 140 pounds, taking on Josh Taylor, who was once the undisputed champion at 140, had one belt because he vacated the other three. Uh, I saw some of the official predictions, Chris, going into that fight, and I didn't see anyone outside of like, yeah, I saw Breadman Edwards, maybe a couple of other people that picked Teofimo Lopez to win. And a lot of that wasn't, it wasn't due to Teofimo's talent, but I think a lot of people were looking at the headspace that Teofimo was in going into that fight. They saw some of the, interviews that he had done specifically one he did days before the fight with Mark Kriegel where it seemed like he was just all over the place there was a lot going on in his life and I figured and many figured uh that would impact him in the ring then he goes out and he dominates forget the two 115 113 scorecards those were ridiculous and we're going to get to that in a minute uh Teofimo dominated really from start to finish in that fight um what was your takeaways from watching that Teofimo win over Josh Taylor so I was ringside that night. Um, we I was in New York City to watch the fight. I'm, I've always been a big Teofimo fan. I love calling his fights. I've called a lot of his fights for, for top rank uh, on the international broadcast. And I've been involved in fight weeks with Teo and his family and his career and his uh, and his his his, uh, his team. And he's like that. And the bigger the stakes for the fight, the more erratic he can be in terms of his his emotions and the way and things he says. I remember leading up to the Lomachenko fight, and I'm like, and that was the first time I'd ever seen him really be that kind of manic up and down. I was like, man, I don't, this is not a good sign. And uh, then he goes out and he puts on a super disciplined performance for 12 rounds against one of the toughest styles you could, you could ever fight in uh, Vasily Lomachenko and gets the win that night. And he just did it again. I don't think I'm ever gonna, gonna, you know, doubt Teofimo again. Cause I had Taylor close in this fight leading into it, up to it. I, my prediction was Taylor, but I had always said it was kind of a pick em fight because you never know which guy's going to show up with both of them. Cause both of them have been spectacular and, and put up duds before, but yeah, I, and I don't think Taylor put up a dud. I think Taylor just put on such a, a masterful performance. He stayed ahead of him all night long, um, had a great game plan, executed perfectly, looked good at the weight. First time I've seen him look that powerful and explosive. Um, his gas tank looked really good. He's been known to tire in fights before, like, namely the Cambosis fight. Not this one. He was he was explosive in round 12. He almost got the a, a knockdown or stoppage in round 12. He looked phenomenal all night long. Uh, I'm very excited for him to be at 140 with some of those other names. But um, 
yeah, I, I don't think we can. I don't think we can go based on his mental anymore. I think the kid just thrives in chaos. So when he's up and down, he's got someone really dangerous in front of him. He just knows how to dial it in and and stay disciplined because that was what was lacking in the Cambosis fight, and that was not lacking at all on Saturday night. I think part of it too was I was at the fight against Pedro Campa, his first fight mm-hmm. at 140, and, and that was okay. He did what he had to do against Campa. Yeah, you were sitting I, right behind me. Yeah, I, yeah, I do think he got, and you were there too, and I, I think he got hit maybe a little bit too much in that fight. Yep. It made me wonder how he would handle bigger punchers at 140. I was at the Sandor Martin fight, and look, I've seen enough of Sandor Martin to know it's challenging to fight that guy. There isn't a fighter at 140 that's going to look great going up against Sandor Martin, but he was knocked down in that fight at least once, could have been twice, um, so I, I don't think he had momentum going into that fight, but something just, a switch was flipped in Teofimo Lopez. Stylistically, did you see a different fighter than the guy you saw against Campa and against Sandro Martin? No, because everything he does, he does well. And, and, and even in those fights where he fell short, it's his discipline. It's just his, his ability to not get frustrated. Um, in the Sandro Martin fight, cause he, you know, obviously he's a, he's a, he's a frustrating fighter, but also he didn't feel the danger. He wasn't as cautious defensively. Same thing with Pedro Campa. Like he, he, like you said, he got hit too much in that fight because he didn't. He wasn't worried when he's got a dangerous guy in front of him, like a Josh Taylor. When he's got a a, a Lomachenko, I think he really dials in. He he needs to have his back against the wall to perform his best. And uh, especially like you said, it, it, the momentum was not on his side. But he has been busy at forty. He had three fights within a year. Taylor obviously hadn't fought in sixteen months and really had fought once in three years. And I think that was the major difference. Teofimo just find a, found a groove, fell into it pretty early, um, and he was smart. He was he he knew enough about Taylor to know that he was dangerous. So we stayed switched on and dialed in all night long. So you're sitting there watching that fight ringside. What is going through your mind when you hear Steve Gray and Joseph Pasquale score at one fifteen, one thirteen for Lopez? Effectively, he needed Lopez being the twelfth round to win that fight, or it would have been a majority draw. I gave Taylor two rounds. I'm, I'm watching his fight. It was a second round. I'm like, oh man, Taylor found his rhythm. I and mean, he finds his rhythm. He's, he's a, it's a thing of beauty to watch him work. And he just, like I said, he just stayed ahead all night long. He was landing the bigger shots. He was faster. He was more explosive. He was controlling where the fought, fight was fought in the ring, which is what ring, ring general, generalship is. When Taylor did land, he did land some big shots. He walked right through them. Teofimo was unfazed by any of the clean shots that Taylor landed. And actually, Taylor was hurt several times, head and body. They were visibly shaken by some of his shots. So I don't know how you could find that many rounds to give to Taylor. But the official judges always do. They always find some way, somehow. Um, I was in the room as well. I, I, I don't know what they were seeing. I, I hope the New York State Athletic Commission looks hard at that because I mean, can you they imagine? Won't. Can you imagine? They won't. Yeah, they, you're, you're right. You're right. They, they won't. Uh, maybe I'm just being optimistic. Could you imagine mm-hmm. though the? I mean, what would have gone on in that arena if Teofimo had taken the twelfth round off, which he very easily could. I mean, oh, in yeah. his corner, he probably thought, what "Was it Benoit Rousseau who had it seventeen eleven ringside?" I saw Max Kellerman, Mark Kriegel. They added about 1810, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right, he yeah. could have he could have easily just said, Look, I'm gonna, you know, be defensive in this twelfth round. If he did, you know, Taylor goes home with his belt. Like it's it's crazy. Like it's just this kind of stuff it just happens way too often. Um I, I want to give credit to Teofimo's dad too in this fight. I thought he had a good game plan coming in. I thought he uh I thought the counter punching of Teofimo was sharp, the body attacks early from Teofimo were sharp. I mean, 
my feelings on Teofimo Sr. have kind of ebbed and flowed over the last couple of years. Thought he had a great game plan against Lomachenko, but I don't think he's been the best, you know, guide in the corner of his son over the last couple of years, specifically with uh, what what happened in the Cambosis fight. Uh, How much credit do you give Teofimo Sr. for how that fight played out? I've always given him credit because, you know, he he gets his son in in tip-top shape. He's, he's, you know, he's obviously very, very skilled. His boxing IQ is very high. His ability to pull the trigger on, uh, you know, when he needs to is, is there. Um, and I agree. The Cambosis was a disaster from top to bottom, from from the the strategy, from the mindset, from how everything happened, from, the you know, what he was going into the ring in terms of health-wise and being out of the ring all that time because of that whole triller mess and all those different mm-hmm. things. So there was a lot of things going against him that night that I think a lot of people have forgotten about. Um, but listen, that was the worst night he could possibly have. And I think if they fought a hundred times, Teo wins 99 of them. It's just, it's just one of those things. But, um, no, I, I give a lot of credit to, to, to senior. I think, I think he does a really good job with his son. He knows him better than anyone, obviously. And I think he also knows that poking the bear is a good thing. Getting, getting Teo to be uncomfortable so he can, he can feel that, that, that fight or flight and, and dial in to, to, to be his best. Yeah. I mean, in the two biggest fights of Teofimo Lopez's career, Teofimo Sr. has put together two game plans that have worked. Uh, His game plan against Lomachenko worked. His game plan against Josh Taylor worked. Now, Teofimo had to go out and execute it, uh, and he deserves the the most credit. Uh, But, you know, if we're going to beat up on Sr. for some of his flaws, some of the issues he's had the last couple of years, he was on point, just like his son uh, in that fight on Saturday night. Uh, After the fight, Teofimo did not call out any of the big names in the division. He didn't call out anyone. Take a listen. I'm going to be announcing my retirement to the sport of boxing. Blood, sweat, and tears I've done for the sport at a young age, at 25 years young. I believe, uh, and the first male, really, to become a two-time Undisputed World Champion. Very grateful for it. In the four-belt era. In the four-belt era, yes. Uh, Right now, I'm just uh, really thinking about, you know, I have a lot of um, ideas. I have a lot of things in mind for the sport of boxing, and I really... Um, I really can't do that if I'm always in the gym training and preparing for another upcoming fight or bout. So I'm really just focusing right now on um, on that task right now. So, Chris, this was uh, met with widespread skepticism, to say the least, the idea that Teofimo uh, is going to retire. What did you make of his post-fight claims that he was done with the sport? My initial thought was smart. Very, very smart. He's got a new marketing and, 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 and negotiating chip that he can use now. But in hindsight, looking back at it, especially based on some of the things that he said, it was immediately post-fight. I've been there. Post-fight interviews are really hard, especially when you have a tough fight. And maybe that fight wasn't so tough physically, but it was very tough emotionally, spiritually, mentally. I've been in fights with that. I had fights where people thought it was very easy. I won, you know, nine out of 10 rounds, but I'm emotionally, spiritually exhausted because I had to be so dialed in all night long. And he said, he's like, I'm tired, man. And when I heard him say that, and with the way he said it too, I I felt it. I was like, yeah, no, I I get it. You deserve to be tired. Your training camps are long and hard. That fight was grueling in terms of what you had to do and what you had to prepare and who you had in front of you. So I I think a lot of it was just him as usual, wearing his heart on his sleeve and be like, man, I'm not getting paid enough for this. This is way too much work. This is way too hard. This other guys are getting paid for fighting lesser opponents and I'm fighting these killers and I'm still getting raked over the coals in the media and whatnot. But then I think in hindsight, he stuck to it because he goes, oh, wait, he saw what I saw and goes, oh, this is a good marketing chip. I can make some more money now because I said one of the issues is money. This is going to help me get paid more. So let's let's go with it. Well, you're right. He 
it immediately went from I'm retired to give me a hundred million dollars. <laughs> so he, he went <laughs> rocketing to the top asking for a nine figure payday. When he said he made a yeah. million dollars, I, I think top rank would push back on that and say they paid him more than a million dollars, but it, it still was surprising. You know, I mean, that's a fight that, you know, did almost a million viewers on ESPN. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a big time fight, big time promotion. You would expect him to make more money. I don't look. I don't think he's retired. I I think there's too many big names in the 140 pound division for him to fight. And and even if he wants to look down a division for a guy that might come up, look, I wouldn't mind seeing a Cambosis rematch. Cambosis is going to fight Maxi Hughes in July. If Teofimo can't make a big fight with Devin Haney because Devin Haney's going to have some options, if he can't get a unification fight either with Regis Progre, Subriel Matias, Roly Romero, uh, Cambosis too is kind of marketable. You know, Cambosis is coming off back-to-back loss to Devin Haney, but if he goes out there and takes care of business against Maxi Hughes, you would know the buildup for that fight is going to be pretty interesting. Both those guys really can't stand each other. Uh, I think that's that's a reasonable fight for Teofimo, and if he's on his game, it's probably the least dangerous of the fights for him when you consider what the other options are out there. Yeah, and it's twofold because Cambosa is like, well, I already beat the guy, mm-hmm. so maybe I can do it again. I can I can find lightning a bottle again. And if he's realistic about his skill set and style, matching up with guys like Tank and Shakur Stevenson, and obviously Devin Haney, we've 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 answered that over and over. We answered that in twenty four rounds. So um, you know, if he was realistic with 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 how he matches up with those other guys at lightweight, this would be the best fight for him to move up to 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 fight Teo again. Um, Teo has a lot to lot to gain by winning that fight and, and, and shutting up the haters, and it's probably the most money that uh, that Cambosis could could make unless he fights those other guys where he doesn't really, in my book, doesn't really stand a chance. Yeah, I think if you're Cambosis, look, he's fighting for uh, a, a, an IBO title in uh, in July, but he's kind of being lined up for a shot at the IBF version of the 135 pound title, assuming Devin Haney vacates these belts as many people expect. And look, if he gets that title, there's some money in it, but it also is a pathway towards Shakur Stevenson. And that's a fight I think he has no chance of winning. So if you're yeah. if you're Cambosis, you probably got to be looking at the financials here and say, look, if you offer me enough money, I'll go up to 140 and fight Teofimo Lopez in a rematch. It's got to be about the money at this point for for George Cambosis. Um, this version of Teofimo, like, where do you put him? Like, let's assume Devin Haney's at 140 for his next fight. You've got Regis Prograde there. You've got Subriel Matias there. You've got Ryan Garcia moving up there. Uh, Roly Romero has a belt. Like, where do you rank Teofimo right now? This version of him that we saw against Josh Taylor uh, among the guys at 140. So prior to the Cambosis fight, I was super bullish on Teofimo. I thought that he was the most physically gifted and talented of the crew. I also saw that he had a very high boxing IQ, was able to execute his explosion, his, his boxing ability, his defense, which is very often overlooked because he's been hit in fights, but it's mostly because he just allows it. If he doesn't want to get hit, like we saw on Saturday night, he really doesn't have to. He's He is that good. Um, when he's dialed in and at his best, I can see him beating all of those guys. He he, he really is that talented. Um, we just haven't seen that in a number of years. Good thing is he's young. He's very young. And he hasn't, other than the Cambosis fight, he hasn't taken that much damage um, in his career. He's been in some good fights. He's, he's he's had a very good roster of guys that he's fought. Even even the guys that a lot of maybe casuals might not know, like the Nakatani fight. Like mm-hmm. Nakatani was a tough, tough guy. And prior to the, the multiple stoppages he had since then, it was very, very good. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think that he, that version fares really well, even even at 140 with all those guys, and even like a 35 pounders who are coming up. 
Yeah, you know who you know who was a big winner in the Teofimo fight outside of Teofimo and everybody connected to him. I thought Devin Haney had to have been happy after that that win because now Devin Haney has at least two realistic options for his immediate future. I mean, before the Teofimo Taylor fight, you know, if Taylor had won, I don't think Devin Haney was going to fight Josh Taylor. I just don't think that was in the cards. There wasn't enough money in it for that to happen. But with Teofimo winning. All of a sudden, Teofimo versus Devin Haney, we've got a history, we've talked a lot to each other back when they were both at 135. That's a pretty marketable fight. On the other side, a fight that we're going to talk about in a minute, Regis Progray's there at 140. Before the Teofimo stuff, it seemed like a, a pretty good possibility that Devin Haney could move up, re-sign with Matchroom, and wind up fighting Regis Progray before the end of the year. These two pathways for Devin Haney, I mean, obviously money's going to talk because Devin Haney is going to look for the biggest payday. But what's the best pathway for him? What's the best option for Devin Haney if he, to borrow a LeBron phrase, takes his talents to 140? Yeah, I, I think that realistically, if he, if he were to sign with Matchroom, he gets the winner of the uh, Montana Love yep. Kitchens fight. Well, that fight. That makes sense. I like that fight. Um, it's a good entry into 140. It's a good you know signing back with Matchroom. Um, and then from there, look for the progress fight. And I think the more time progress, 35 years old, he's not getting younger. Haney is getting becoming more physical as we're seeing that he looked, he looked very strong against, uh, Lomachenko. And then I think as he moves up in weight, 140, he'll be more physical. Even then I'm not sure how much power he's going to have. And it really was a power puncher, but, um, yeah, I think, th I think that's probably the most realistic pathway and, and that of least resistance. And then it, it lines up for, you know, <laughs> listen, the, the landscape changes so fast. We've already we're already looking at six, seven, eight months in, in in advance if we're going with the Hitchens love winner versus and then the progress fight. So what happens after that? Everything could be upside down by then. Yeah, I think uh, I'm just fascinated by Teofimo versus Haney. I think that would be a great buildup. I think it's a great style fight. Um, you know, and and if you're Devin, I Haney, think it's one of the tougher fights for for Teo. Actually, yeah, you think Haney, it's tough? Haney's Haney's a tougher? tough style. Yeah. Just because of styles, he's a very. I get I get raked over the coals and on, on social media all the time because I talk about how 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 Haney matches up with these guys and people just don't understand when you have someone who's long, controls the distance, has a great jab, has speed and endurance, and Haney's got a great gas tank. Hmm. When you got a guy in front of you like that, if you've never boxed, you've never been in, a, in the ring with a guy like that. I'm telling you, it's a nightmare to fight those kind of guys because Haney doesn't care. He'll he'll win by this much every hmm. round. Yeah. He just doesn't. He'll do enough just to win. Uh, those guys are very difficult to get to. He doesn't like to get hit. He doesn't want to be in the in, in the in the fray. Guys who can control pace like that, very very difficult style to overcome. And, and maybe he might be, not be the most dangerous guy in terms of getting knocked out or getting hurt, but he's a very dangerous guy in terms of in terms of winning rounds and and winning a fight. Yeah, the only flaw I've ever seen in Devin's game comes when he, he just gets in his head. That he's a power puncher. Like Devin is mm -hmm. kind of obsessed with power. Like he wants to be seen mm -hmm. as. We the all guy, are. As the, <laughs> it's boxing. <laughs> yeah. I, but he look, I always said the Antonio Moran win was one of the worst things that could have happened to him because now every time a yeah. Devin Haney promo comes on, it shows the knockout of Moran, and you have to hear Todd Grisham go, firing his eyes over and over again. Um, it, it's, it, it created a, a reality that doesn't really exist. Devin Haney's a boxer. Yeah. He's not a puncher. Uh, so if, if he goes up to 140 and decides he wants to bang a little bit with Teofimo Lopez, that could get him into trouble. But he is, I think, one of the most disciplined fighters I see in boxing today. Yep. When his father and whoever his father brings in to work that camp, whether it's Ben Davison or somebody else, 
gives him a game plan, he follows it to a T. He cannot be knocked or knocked off that game plan. And I think that's one of his best attributes. He's, he's a brilliant boxer, but he follows that game plan right down the middle. So if he does that against Devin, against Teofimo Lopez, if he does that against Regis Progre, he's going to have a lot of success uh, in this new weight class. Uh, also last weekend, I was ringside in Ontario where Jaime Munguia maintained his undefeated record, but man, he had to work for it in this one. A super middleweight clash with uh, Sergei Dervinchenko unsurprisingly turned into a war with Munguia needing a 12th round knockdown to pull out the victory. Uh, let's start with Munguia, his performance. Were you impressed? Were you, you know, not impressed? What, what did you think of the way Munguia fought? I was impressed. I mean, he, listen, he's fighting a middleweight. They were both for, for the campaign at the first time, 168, and they were bringing up Derevinchenko. Derevinchenko's 37 years old. Um, but Munguia looked, he looked the goods early on, and he had to pull it out late. So I, I was impressed in terms of that. I've not really been that impressed with Munguia at all, you know, in, in recent years. But he is really young. He is still getting better. This was a step-up fight. Um even though it was very heavily favored in his favor because again, fighting a 37-year-old former true middleweight. Um, and, but listen, <laughs> Derevchenko is one of those guys. He's the tough, I've, I've sparred with Derevchenko. I've been in camp with him before. Um, he is the toughest rounds of sparring I've ever had. The guy is, he is a very, very difficult guy to deal with. Um, he's physically strong. He's got great endurance. He throws a lot of punches. Um, he's got sneaky power. So I'm not surprised that he was able to spine those holes with Munguia because Munguia fights, he's got a style where he leaves a lot of openings. He throws some punches, what I call her fat. They're kind of swinging and loopy. Um, he finds, you know, he finds his home, obviously, and he, he's he's got he's got power and endurance. He throws a lot of punches, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I I was impressed with Munguia, but I was impressed with Darren Chenko. Digging, going back to the well one more time. He's he's a hard luck guy. He's always right there with the tip top guys in the world. Um, but you know, 37 years old, he's long in the tooth at this point. Oh, he's, but uh, yeah. yeah, I think Munguia pulling it out the way he did, dropping. Derevchenko to the body, it's it's pretty impressive. So, I mean, on a whole, great fight. Uh, I was impressed. He got, had to dig deep. He, he showed a different a different layer to, to to what he brings to the table. And he's going to need to have that with, with these guys, especially at 68. Oh, he's, Derevchenko is the best 14-5 fighter in boxing history. Ever. <laughs> he just is. Ever. Uh, yeah. He makes you work every single time. And it, look, even though I, I don't think that fight was a robbery, um, it was kind of along the same lines as his previous fights, whether it's Daniel Jacobs yeah. or Gennady Golovkin, where there were yeah, enough swing rounds that it could have gone either way. But just a hard luck case with... Yeah, the only fight he wasn't in was Charlo. Yeah. That every was a loss, clean, every yeah. loss, he was absolutely right there. Yeah, no question. Even, you know, the people you know, whether it's Andre Rogier, Keith Conley, they weren't screaming robbery after that fight. They knew how close it was, and that knockdown in the 12th uh, ultimately made the difference. But that was almost a disaster. For Jaime Munguia. Yeah. Go back and watch that fifth round. What was that round? Fifth, fifth, five. Fifth, yeah, fifth I remember watching it. Yep. Like, if that round goes like three minutes and 15 seconds, I don't know what happens to Jaime Munguia in that fight. And I'd reported yep. early in the fight that Munguia's team asked for late this fight to be changed from a 12-round fight to a 10-round fight. And that Ooh. screams that your guy is not in the kind of shape needed to be in a 10-round fight. Now, the irony of it all is that if it was 10 rounds, Derevchenko would have won a decision. Like yeah, Munguia, yeah. it turns out, actually needed those final two rounds, especially the 12th, to win right. this fight. So if you're Derevchenko, you're probably waking up Monday morning going, damn, 
I could have made six figures and won the fight, six extra figures and won the fight. That's got to hurt a little bit. But I understood the strategy at the time. It made sense to ask for, for the full 12 rounds. Where I give Munguia credit is how he dug deep. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. we have not seen that yet from Jaime Munguia. But he did it kind of with Toriano Johnson in the middle stages of that fight where he landed that big uppercut that justifiably stopped the fight. And now he does it here against who I think is easily the best opponent of his career. And he digs yeah. deep and gets a stoppage in the 12th round. I don't really know what this means as far as Munguia's place among the top guys at 168. He's obviously done with 160 right now, but he gets hit an awful lot, Chris. He, he gets hit. And yep. as you mentioned, Derevchenko, more of a middleweight, has fought above 160 before, but he's, a, he's been a, largely a middleweight for his entire career. As I'm watching that fight unfold, part of me is wondering, like, what happens if he ever winds up in the ring with, like, David Benavidez? If he ever gets an opportunity to fight Canelo Alvarez? Like, he's got a good chin, and he never went down in that fight. But the fifth round was near disaster. There were a couple of moments in the early rounds where he took some big shots. What happens to him at this weight class when he gets hit with clean punches. I mean, I, I can remember as recently as like a couple of months ago where his team was negotiating a fight with Dimitri Bivol. Like, if that was Dimitri Bivol in the ring with him on Saturday, that wouldn't have made it past the fifth round. That might not have made it past the fourth round. So as you kind of like zoom out on Munguia's career, like how does he match up with those guys at 168? Because he's undefeated, he's marketable. There are about 8,000 people in Ontario on Saturday night. He's probably going to do a decent number in terms of viewership. But how does he match up with some of the guys he's going to have to face at 168? How about a David Morrell? Oh, no, Get I don't it. want to see I mean, that. No, the no, way, no. Yeah, yeah the, <laughs> no. the way that kid can pull the trigger and, sh- and, and throw tight, short, hard punches. That, I, like I said about it, he's got fat punches. He throws them fat, meaning there's a lot of fat on there wide, and there's a lot of openings. And Derevchenko is a very short, tight puncher. Again, like you said, not a, not a true 68-er. These 68-ers, they, they can pull the trigger and they got power. Mm-hmm. If they can punch in between those punches the way that Dervinchenko was doing, and the way that most Mugia's opponents have been able to do, um, and Mugia doesn't have that lights-out power. He throws those big looping shots. He lands them. Yeah, he hurts guys. He was able to you know get to the body of Dervinchenko, um, but it's not the same kind of crunching power that you can see with some of these guys like Benavides and, and, and David Morrell and you know Canelo Alvarez. Yeah, I mean they're gonna have to really go back to the drawing board, work on that 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 defensive the, that that defense part because you can't get hit that clean in these weight classes with these guys have lights out power and one one punch to chaos. You know what the fight to make is, and I'm addressing this to the audience, but specifically I'm addressing this to your boy Keith Conley, your longtime manager, Edgar Berlanga yep. against Jaime Munguia. Awesome fight in September is awesome. Like, that is a sold-out crowd in New York, in Southern California, in Vegas. It's incredibly marketable because Berlanga is all personality. Puerto Rico. Mexico versus Puerto Rico. You name it, it's got a high ceiling, whatever whatever you want to talk about. I think Munguia would be all for it. I think Golden Boy would be all for it. I'm not convinced Berlanga and his team would be all for it. What I'm hoping happens, Chris, and we're going to get to this in just a moment, is that Canelo picks either Jamal Charlo or Badu Jack for his next fight, which would take the possibility of Berlanga facing Canelo in September 
off the table. If that's on the table, I understand. That's a lottery ticket mm. for Edgar Berlanga. You've got to pursue that as long as you can. But if Canelo chooses another path, I, I, I Berlanga, I don't want to see him in against a lesser-tiered 168-pounder because he's trying to bide his time until May of 2023 to maybe get a fight against Canelo Alvarez. I think Berlanga versus Munguia is a coin flip at this point. Both these guys have, yeah. have, have talent. Both these guys have flaws. Both these guys have power. Like, that, to me, is a natural fight to make. It's a fight I know, I know, Zone would put up money for. They want to, to see that fight happen. Um, I, I, I'm, I guess my question is like, do you think Berlanga would do it? Like, do you think, and, and fighters always want to do it, but it's like, do you think the people around him would view that as too big a risk with what could be on the table in 2024? You know, I think a lot of it's going to depend on what happens with Quigley next week with Berlanga. If he looks spectacular, they're going to push hard for the Canelo fight. Mm -hmm. If the Canelo fight does not materialize, like you said, he ends up going the Badu Jack route. He goes Charlo route. I think he's actually going to go the Badu Jack route, but whatever. Mm -hmm. That's really that's another conversation. Um, I think that that fight becomes very, very good. And that, that makes a lot of sense because it's a winnable fight for Edgar. Yeah. For, uh, the way they match up. And honestly, I mean, Dervichenko could be a sparring partner for Edgar to help him prepare to get ready for, for Munguia. It yeah. makes a lot of sense that fight. And if it makes money, if it makes dollars, it makes sense. And, you know, I think waiting around, like you said, for a May fight with Canelo that may never materialize, probably not the best idea. So uh, I, I like I like what you're thinking, Chris. I like that mentality of getting that Mugia fight coming in September. It's a massive sell selling fight. Uh, but if the Canelo fight doesn't materialize, yeah, that, I mean, that's the next biggest fight that can happen. Yeah. Uh, look, if he struggles with Quigley, it's probably a yeah, different conversation. All, everything, everything's off, everything's I mean, off, the, Quigley, off the table. Then. I, look, I, I, I love Jason Quigley. I, I've admired his career from afar for a long time, but... I was there ringside in New Hampshire when Demetrius Andrade walked right through him. And Demetrius Andrade mm -hmm. is a 160-pounder. Edgar Berlanga, you know, should look impressive in this fight. And if he gets Canelo, great. More power to him. Uh, I, I don't, it's, it's not, I don't view that as a competitive fight at this point because then Canelo's on a different level. But if you get offered the fight, you take it. That's a lottery ticket. Hell yeah. You, you take that fight. Um, if it's not, I mean, it would be really frustrating to see Berlanga walk away from that fight because it's a politically a very easy fight to put together. And the winner of that fight, I mean, the winner of that fight would have a mandate or as much of a mandate as anyone outside of David Benavidez to fight Canelo Alvarez. Like they, they would have the popularity. They would have, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's not going to, that's not a decision fight. And if it is, it's like an absolute war over 12 rounds. Uh, they yeah. would have the bounce that comes with it. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, I mean, look, I'm going to be there, you know, with, you know, calling that fight ringside. And you better believe you know, that's going to come up post-fight if Berlanga wins. You know, it, will he take a fight against Jaime Munguia? Um, I just hope it happens, man. That, that, you look at a, the potential calendar in the fall. You can't name me three or four fights better in the second half of 2023 that would be better than Berlanga, Jaime Munguia. Like, it's just an incredible. Yeah, fight. you make that fight this, this year. This year's been going great for for fights. Fantastic, an awesome, awesome yeah. year. 
really, really good year. If we can, if we can close halfway as good as we've started, I mean, this is one of the best boxing years in, in recent memory. But uh, yeah, I think we should send this video to Berlanga's team. With you talking about it because you, you're you're selling you're you're selling it pretty hard. Uh, well, we'll just hop on our phones here and I'll put you on a group chat with Keith Conley and uh, we'll uh, <laughs> send him that note and say, <laughs> here's our take on all this. A um, couple of things before I let you go. We got Regis Prograde this weekend in New Orleans. Yep. He's going to face. Uh, Zaria. Zaria won, lost. Arno Barbosa, that went to a decision. Uh, you've started to look at Zaria a little bit. How much of a threat do you think he is to Regis Progre? I mean, he can punch. So there's always that. Um, I called the uh, the fight against Bar um, <laughs> Barbosa with Zaria. Um, you know, he, he's taken the fight on somewhat short notice. I mean, we'll, we'll learn more after fighter meetings in terms of how his camp was, what he was getting ready for in terms of leading into this fight. But he's tall. So he's got that he's got that that height, that size, and he go, he can legitimately punch. I watched him uh, live knock out Kano, who is mm. normally a very durable guy, and he iced him early, and uh, it was a scary knockout actually. So the guy does have real power. He can punch. You know, we saw in the um, Barbosa fight, he can be outboxed though. He can be neutralized, but you know, he's got an opportunity in front of him. He's got a guy in Progray, and Progray is is super talented. He's got he's got a good punch, but. He's been hit and he gets hit. You know, he's he's not he's willing to get in there and, and get touched a little bit. When you got a guy who's got power, is there's always an option or you know to have a real fight. Uh, but we'll see. I don't really I don't see him beating Progray. I think Progray still has the goods, even even at his advanced age. Um because yeah, you know, Progray hasn't been in tough fights in recent years. So I think he's even younger than his, his chronological age. But um, but yeah, no, I think I think it could be it could be interesting because like I said, the guy does have power and he's 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 got a good size for the weight class. You were once a title holder in this weight class. What what's the fighter opinion of Regis Progray? Because the media take is that he has been avoided, that nobody wants to get in with his awkward, hard-hitting southpaw. Uh, it's why he was kind of in that boxing wilderness for the last three and a half years. What's your take on the talent level, the the everything with Regis Progray. Definitely a talented guy. Um, I, I think a lot of fighters are going to say he's, you know, he's not going to agree so much with the media in terms of he's the most avoided guy or something like that. Mm. I think he's been really smart as a businessman. His team has moved him really, really well. He hasn't been in, a, in like a major fight against anyone dangerous since Taylor, and he's made a ton of money. So anytime you can make money fighting guys that aren't that dangerous, eh, it's a smart move, and I don't, I don't, I don't knock you at all. So, um, you know, and he's been jumping around from, you know promotions to promotions and 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 all that but um yeah no I, I think he's been he's been moved quite well he had a really tough upbringing he had to come up in the ranks and on on low level shows in New York and you know w w the talent was there but he wasn't he didn't turn into the you know the the the, the what's his nickname the Rougarou mm. you know and until he he got a little more shine and fought better opposition once he got into that tournament then you really saw him step up and you know became a world champion and beat some really really tough guys um and then he got stopped by stopped in his tracks and get stopped knocked out by taylor and it meant a good fight but taylor turned out to be the goods as well so um but since then he hasn't really been in any any real dangerous fights but he's he's always performed and he's always done what he's needed to do with the guys that were in front of him so there's a, there's a lot to say for that too but we got to see him in big fights if we can really say that he is that level of guy you know that that they're talking about in terms of being so avoided yeah and we've you know tafimo at least theoretically, is out there. We've talked about Devin Haney being out there. The fight I want for Regis Broker, though, is Subaru Matias, uh, yep. which is a absolute war in the ring. I mean, and I hope, I hope Matias doesn't price himself out in this situation. I've heard he wants a lot of money to sign with someone. Uh, he's got a title, so that's you know his 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 leverage. But he's he fought, got a meal ticket. Yeah, he, but he fought just once in 2021, once in 2022. 
He has one fight in 23 and nothing scheduled. He's 31 years old, and these are some prime years uh, for Subriel Matisse. He's got some offers out there. I just hope he takes one sooner rather than later. And we're not you know, talking about him going into 2024, potentially uh, getting a fight. But that against Regis, that is an absolute war. Uh, last thing for you, we talked a little bit about Canelo. Uh, it seems like his options have come down to two opponents, or at least there are two leaders in the clubhouse. ESPN reporting that Canelo is choosing between Badu Jack, who has a title at Cruiserweight. We've seen Canelo flirt with a move up to the Cruiserweight division in the past. And Jamal Charlo, who still has somewhat inexplicably, a middleweight title despite being off uh, for the last two years. Uh, what do you think the right fight is for Canelo among those two guys? The right fight or the fight that's probably going to happen? Well, the, I mean, the, let's the go fight, both. <laughs> man, the fight that's probably going to happen, I think, is the Badu Jack fight. So you I think, think like, tell me about fight. that. Tell me, tell me why you think that's going to happen because I'm always skeptical of these Saudi deals until they actually happen. It seems like going back to Pacquiao, like Amir Khan, you know, a decade and a half ago, it, we're always talking about the Middle East getting into the mix and making big fights happen. They've done that. I mean, Anthony Joshua has fought there. Eddie Hearns made a couple of deals with the Middle East, but I, I'm always skeptical about these deals being closed until they're actually closed. Well, I, I saw in Badu Jack's last fight when he, uh, he beat the, uh, the cruiserweight, and I'm watching this, and I tweeted it. I go, Canelo beats both these guys. Mm. Don't don't be surprised if Canelo moves up because they they they're, they're slow. They're big and they're slow, and they don't have a lot of power. Like they're not they're not like true cruiserweights. Better Jack's not a true cruiserweight. He's 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 blown up to to there, and he's he's older. Mm. Uh, and Canelo's Canelo's advantage is always his speed. That's why he's done so well moving up in weight. He's the guys get slower. They're getting bigger and better, but he's got good enough defense. He's he's durable enough. But his speed is the real difference, and his ability to pull the trigger. Um, I, I, listen for legacy. You go up and you get to become a cruiser, cruiserweight Mexican cruiserweight champion of the world. It's, yeah. uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of upside in terms of looking at the history books. Back, you know, in hindsight, right now it's going to get raked over the coals as it should. It's a, it's a stupid fight, especially if they make him if they make Badu Jack sweat down to a lower weight and still have a title, which is absolutely insane. I heard that yesterday, which is mind blowing well, to I me. Think I think that's what it's going to come down to. I think that's what's going to come crazy. down to. How low will Badu Jack be willing to go? Because I don't think Canelo will fight him. He shouldn't have to come back at all. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a cruiserweight fight. How are you going to make a, a catchweight for a title fight? That's that's insane to me. You can't yeah. do that. Yeah. I, that it, it, it takes a legitimate it illegitimizes that that fight. I mean, th don't 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 even do that. But the Charlo fight, people will be excited for. I think a little bit, even though Charlo has been so inactive. But it's it, it, it's someone that is is dangerous. It's someone that's been talked about for a long time. So I want to see that fight. I really want to see the Benavidez fight, but mm. obviously that's that's not really even on the table anymore, unfortunately. Um, I think Benavidez is very, very, very talented, and he's going to be around for a long time in these divisions wreaking havoc. Um, I, I think if Canelo's smart, he should have took that fight and get it early because mm. I think there's still a chance to beat him before he really becomes the monster that I think he's going to be. But you, I mean, do, do you Canelo, think, do you he can do whatever though, he wants. Yeah, he can do whatever he wants because wherever he goes, yeah. there's $30, $40 million in it for him. Uh, look, he's been, in my mind, any criticism of Canelo over the last couple of years has been unwarranted because he's fought title holders. You know, he took the fight with Gennady Golovkin, which is the biggest money fight out there for him. But his kind of indifference to David Benavidez is interesting. I mean, if the offer that was coming from PBC is true, and I reported there was around a $40 million guarantee with the possibility via gate and pay-per-views that it could get up to $50 million. If that's true, like... Do we is is Canelo now open for criticism for not fighting the most marketable fight against the top guy out there? Yeah, 
I, I, especially the fight makes sense. It, it's it's a blockbuster, and if there's money there too, and it's the fight that makes the most sense. I mean, what are we doing here? He he just came off fighting a guy that on the global stage no one really cared about. Um, John Wright is a tough guy. I didn't think it was a great opponent because he's going to be tough, and actually Canelo did better than I expected. But um, yeah, you you can't you can't keep treading water when you're when you're the face of boxing. You can't take those kind of fights. You have to be in super fights back to back to back. I understand coming off injury, hand surgery, you fight a John Ryder. Cool. I get it. But now your next fight has to be massive. And the David Benavidez fight makes the most sense and is a massive, massive fight. And especially if there's the money's right too, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. There's no excuse. You don't like the guy or you think he's going to beat you. So what, what, what are we doing? I don't, I don't know. I, I think that fight needs to, need, needed to happen, needs to happen. Um, otherwise, th there should be criticism. Yeah, Benavidez aside will tell you, and this is all one-sided, that you know they think that Canelo doesn't like how big Benavidez gets after the weigh-in, like how, how much he rehydrates Fair. to. Um, and it does feel like, in a way, Canelo's entering kind of the Mayweather stage of his career. Yeah. And, and Mayweather, when he hit his early to mid-30s, Started being, he wasn't cherry picking because he fought good guys, but he was selective with yeah. when and who he fought. Um, and maybe that's what Canelo's doing now. Maybe that's what he's looking at. You know, a fight with Jamal Charlo where he can make $30, $35 million. Not as much danger as a fight with David Benavidez, Badu Jack. Maybe he can make $60 million. God knows what kind of money's out there for him in that fight. You can't really fault him for that. <laughs> if, you're, no. if, if you have a chance... When, when look, you're already a Hall of Famer. You're the undisputed champion at 168. Your your bona fides, your credentials speak for themselves. If you have a chance to cash in on equal or bigger paydays to fight lesser opponents, you're probably going to do it. You're probably going to do it. And uh, I mean, I one I, I give credit to David Benavidez. Like it sounds like he's pivoting right to David Morrell, which is good for him. Like, I mean, That's good badass, for him because yeah. David Morrell has no fan base. He's a tough guy, and you and I know how good he is, but nobody yeah. else knows how good he is. And David He's Benavidez seems willing to go out there and fight that guy. So I give Benavidez a lot of credit, but it sounds like he's going to have to wait a while before he gets an opportunity to fight Canelo. In fact, David Benavidez might decide he's done at 168 um, because he's a big guy, and cutting down weight has got to be challenging for him. Yeah, I don't. I don't. If, if Benavidez doesn't get Canelo this year, I don't think he ever gets him. No. I, I just, I think that'll be off the table. Um, he's because he's getting better. He's getting bigger. He's growing into himself in terms of his physical maturity. Um, I, you know, you mentioned that Canelo's entering like his Floyd Mayweather stage. You know, I think of like Julio Cesar Chavez senior stage. You know, later on, he still fought the young tough guys. Like he fought Oscar De La Hoya. Like that was like his David Benavidez. He, you know, he fought him. Listen, he lost. Goal came back, fought him again. Lost again. We don't knock Chavez for that. We, you know, listen, he fought really a, a a superstar in the making. You know, at the end of your career, like we don't knock those guys for taking those chances. Alexis Arguello losing to uh, um, to um, uh, oh my god, um, uh, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank right now. <laughs> Alexis Arguello, Aaron Pryor, the Hawk, right, Sock. Lost to him twice. Do we knock Alexis Arguello for that? No. He was in his third weight class trying to be great, like going for it. You know, later in his career, a higher weight class against, which turned out to be another living legend, you know, a now rest in peace legend. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I Listen, I'm a, I'm a fighter at heart. And like, I, I hate the protecting your O's or protecting your wins and loss. Go fight. Mm. We don't, in history books, don't look back at losses the way that people do now. And I think that's when you're thinking about legacy, take the big fights, make the big fights.
You know, if, if I'm you're gonna lose, lose to the best. Yeah, look, if I'm David Benavidez, one pathway I'd look at is I'd fight David Morrell, I'd beat him, and then I'd move up to 175 and fight Dimitri Bivol. Because <laughs> like, if you go up and fight Dimitri Bivol and find a way to beat him, uh, you're, all, you're of, all of a sudden you can look at Canelo and be like, well, you wouldn't fight David Morrell when he was a secondary title holder at 168. Uh, you couldn't get a deal done to fight a rematch with Bivol, and you couldn't beat him the first time. Well, I'm gonna go up and I'm gonna beat him. That might be his pathway to getting a Canelo fight, but it doesn't sound like. It just doesn't sound like there's interest. I mean, again, we don't know what the numbers really were. We know what Benavidez's side is saying that they were, uh, but it doesn't sound like that fight's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, Chris Algieri, you can catch him on Wednesday night on Pro Box TV. He'll be down in Florida doing that. He's going to hop a flight to New Orleans where he's going to be on the call with me for the Regis Progre Danielito Zaria fight. Chris, always a pleasure, my man. Thanks for uh, taking the time to join me. Anytime, buddy. Anytime. See you in a couple of days. And when we come back, my conversation with Regis Progre. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Now, I'm supposed to talk here about what I remember and what I loved about my first car. And that's easy for me to do because I still have my first car. And as long as it keeps running, and so far so good, I intend to have that car probably until the day I die. Uh, that's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, 
You can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Regis Progray is the WBC 140-pound champion on Saturday. He will make the first defense of his title. He takes on Danielito Zaria. That's a fight you can watch exclusively on DAZN. It is down in New Orleans, where Regis is right now. And Regis, you have been all over New Orleans over the last couple of days. You're doing an awful lot of running, I got to tell you that. Following your social media, you're running a lot. What's the deal with that? Uh, that's just, I mean, that's, of course, that's a part of training. That's a part of boxing training. That's what we do. <laughs> boxers, if, if, you, if you're a boxer, you don't run, there's something wrong with you, you know? So that's just a part of training, you know? The, the only thing here is just we, um, you know, we're doing it, um, special events. We're doing it with people in New Orleans. We downtown, so we run all around downtown, uptown, through the French quarters, by Cafe Du Monde, on Canal Street, by the casino. We run in all these places. But, you know, as a boxer, that's what you do. That's, that's what you do. You run. You are New Orleans-born raised before hurricane katrina um Mm -hmm. what does it mean to you being back in new orleans and when you go on these runs and you're around people in this city what kind of memories does it bring back it's just it's it's just give me energy that's the thing all this stuff give me energy like you know like the the thing is like all these are my actually my people like you know so it's not it's it's a obviously it's a big deal you know to the, to New Orleans and stuff like that but all the people New Orleans is a real small city and everybody is kind of connected in some type of way so most likely everybody that's gonna be at the Smoothie King is connected to me some type of way you know so um it just but you know to answer your question it just give me energy it give me um you know I I just love being around my people and you know it give me. I am focused and it give me energy to to go out there and do what I do and and not just energy but just um like inspiration and motivation to go out there and just have fun. What was life like for you back then, kind of growing up in in the area you grew up in New Orleans? Um, I think typical. Well, when I say typical, I, well, I can't say typical because um, I guess it's not typical. You know, we grew up on the streets and stuff like that. And, and when I, I don't want people to say like streets. I don't want people to think bad because typically when you say streets, people think like bad, like, it was, but it was just kind of normal to us, you know. Like we, like how we grew up, how everybody was raised. Like we grew up, all like wandering around the streets, having fun playing. Like me and my, all my pops, we played sports. Obviously, we got in trouble, um, you know, in chasing after girls, just all that type of stuff. I left when I was um when I was sixteen. That's when the storm hit. So you know, I was already a teenager and having fun. I was in the eleventh grade already. So, um, but yeah, I mean, typically just like the people the. The lifestyle here in New Orleans is like what people say out here is like live your time easy. Like I, the only thing you have on this earth is time. So let's do it easy. You know what I'm saying? That, and that's that's how it is. They say let the good times roll, and that's really like like what a lot of people out here they live by that. Like you can you can just feel the culture out here. How people just they just they love life, and they you know they might not be as successful, but they really enjoy their life. They have fun every single day of their life, you know? So um, that's why, you know, I, I mean, for me, I, that's why I love the city. That's that's how we grew up. That's how I was raised. And obviously, you know, I moved to Texas because of, because of boxing. That's, the, that's literally the only reason. Well, Hurricane Katrina <clears throat> brought me to Texas, but I stayed. I, I had a, I had an option to go back when I was like around 20 or something like that, 2021. 20, and I was like, nah, man, I need to stay because of boxing. And, you know, that was the best decision I ever made because, you know, I'm here right now. If I would have stayed, if I would have came back to New Orleans when I was like around 20 years old, I wouldn't be where I'm young right now. You know, like, so 
um, I'm glad that I made the decision. And now I get to show people, you know, like you can have you, you can have the heart. New Orleans can be in your heart, you know, but if you want to do something special, you might have to move away. And that's exactly what I did. I did something special. I moved away and now I came back and, you know, um, and, and it's like I never left. And even your boxing nickname, Rougarou, that has its roots in New Orleans, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. It's like a, it's like a, um, a werewolf, like a. They say like the boogeyman of like Louisiana, the swamps in Louisiana, like a werewolf <laughs> boogeyman type of thing in, in the swamps of Louisiana. Yeah. And that came from? Did it come from your grandfather? Is that correct? No, actually. So at the time, it was my, um, it, it was my, it was my dad and my manager, my coach at the time, and I think I had like four fights, and it was like they needed me a nick, they needed a nickname for me, and they was throwing out all kinds of names, and none of them I didn't like none of them. I was like, man, hell no, all these names that's <laughs> whack, bro. So, so um, anyways. Um, my daddy was like Rougarou, and like my manager at the time, he was like, "That's it." And I, I was like, honestly, I'm be honest with you, I didn't even know what it was at the time. I was like, "Man, what the, what the hell is a Rougarou? I don't know what that is." So, you know, they was like, "That's it," and you know, it stuck. And then I had a, I had my tent fight. I fought in Houston, and I came out with a mask. And you know, um, that was my first time ever coming out with a mask. And I came out like I always like to come out with no shirt on. Like Mike Tyson, my favorite fighter, so I always wanted to come out with no shirt on with the black trunks. And I came out with the black trunks with no shirt with the mask on, and people went crazy. And I was like, "All right, that's it. It's, it just stuck with me." <laughs> All right, what was the backup nickname? What was the one that could have been? Uh, it wasn't. I mean, they had like Nolan Knuckles. They had my my coach was like, I don't know. It was um Preston City Crusher. I was like, bro, hell no. Oh, that's lame, bro. I was like, nah, we can't do that. My coach was like, rifle Regis. I was like, bro, no, indeed. No, we can't do that, bro. Nah, that's all. We not doing that at all. So I'm glad that the Rougarou did it and the Rougarou, it, it stuck. Oh, I'm so calling you rifle Regis on Saturday. You know that's coming. <laughs> um, you were originally scheduled to face Liam Paro in this fight, undefeated fighter from Australia. He had to back out pretty quickly. Uh, because of an injury, now you're you're facing Zaria. Uh, as you've been preparing for this fight, how much, if at all, of an adjustment has that been? Um, the only adjustment is is um, you know, switch from a left-handed sparring to right-handed sparring. That's the main thing. Obviously, you know, um, I've been doing it for a long time, so I do have experience. And you know, you just have to like different angles and different punches work on different people. So as a southpaw, you know, you you have to throw your jab a different way. You have to throw your left hand a different way. You have to throw your hooks a different ways. Um, and same thing for the right hand. It's just it's just different. But you know, training been the same. You know, I've been training hard for this. I can't. You know, I never slacked or nothing like that. So, um, that that's all. Just just change up the sparring. You um, Zaria has one loss on his resume, and that was to Arnold Barboza, somebody that you've engaged with on social media. It was originally possible that you were going to face Barboza for this fight. Is it in your mind at all entering the ring like, look, Barboza beat him, but I'm going to beat him worse. I'm going to I'm going to do something a little bit different. Of course, that's that's definitely in my mind to beat. Like it's just like you're always competing in boxing. You have to. You know, you only as good as your last fight. So for me, I have to go out there and I have to shine. You know, Barboza beat him. It's just like, all right, I got to beat him. You know, I have to. It's like I have to beat him worse than Barboza did. That's just something that you, that, that's something I have to do. You know, um, it's just because everybody, they'll compare you. If if, if if I if I do worse than Barboza, they're like, oh, man, Barboza is better than you. That's just how it is in boxing. So I have to go out there and I have to shine even more. You are now a, a key player in what I think is one of the best divisions, maybe the best division right now, uh, or at least it could be, 
in all of boxing. Uh, we had Teofimo Lopez pick up a belt last weekend against Josh Taylor. Uh, I know you watched that fight. Were you surprised by how it played out? For sure. Definitely was surprised, for sure. I mean, I, I think most of the world was surprised. You know, I thought Josh Taylor was just going to whoop him. And he made he made Josh Taylor look average. You know, he didn't make him look like the undisputed, the former undisputed champion. So he made him look average. So, I mean, he definitely surprised me, for sure. What When you watched Teo in fight against Taylor, uh, what was different about him? I mean, we saw him lose to Cambosis, beat Pedro Campa, and then, you know, got knocked down maybe twice by Sandor Martin. Did you see anything different in him in that fight? Um, I just think the styles, I think styles make, I think the, yeah, styles just make fights. And it, it looked like he definitely was more focused. Um, He know Josh Taylor was, you know, was good. And then he had to get back. He just had to get back to boxing. I think that on, on some of those, he strayed away from his game plan. He strayed away from who he really was and, you know, he is like he went back. He went back to, you know, what he doing. He, he went back to his game plan. He went back to boxing, being like a, a real boxer puncher. And, you know, that's what got him to success. Yeah, I, I, I didn't expect him to do that. Uh, but I did feel like people were over overrating his poor performance against Sandor Martin because Sandor Martin makes everybody look kind of awful. You know, he, that's right. just kind of how he fights. He's a tricky, tricky fighter. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, Teo looked more like the guy we saw at 135 than – uh, than that fighter. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think he retires? No, obviously, hell no, no, <laughs> no, not. You know what, man? I, he he need to come. He need to come over to Metrum and get paid. That's what he need to do. You know, he said he, he retired. They gave him. They gave him one million dollars for this fight. That is insane. That's like, bro. They they feed them breadcrumbs basically to the birds. You know, if they give you one million dollars for that fight, it, it's true, man. Like they need to pay him what he's worth. Like they gave him a million dollars for that. That's just that's that's terrible. So I definitely don't think he retires. I think you know it's on his mind right now. But you know, money is always a mo the biggest motivator. So I think that you know, if he faces me or uh, Devin or uh, Ryan or uh, you know somebody big, he'll come back. And I, I'm I know. All of those fights are big fights, you know. So I think his next fight will be, you know, his biggest purse he ever got by far. So um, I think, yeah, I, I don't think he's retiring. That's, I think that's all bullshit. Yeah, you mentioned Devin Haney too. And it surprised me the last couple of weeks to see Devin Haney on social media talking about you. I, I don't know if he's still coming to your fight, but he said he was thinking about it. And you said you'd set him up with some tickets uh, right, right, for right. that fight. W what did you make of... You know, Devin Haney, fresh off that win over Vasily Lomachenko, kind of immediately looking at you potentially for his next fight. That shit, that's cool. I mean, I think he has to do something big because, you know, a lot of people, you know, people are saying that Loma really beat him, you know? So it's like he had, Devin has to do something big, basically. He has to, you know, he'll have to fight me. He'll have to either have to fight Shakur. He'll have to fight Loma rematch. He has to do something because his last fight, you know, people was questioning it, you know, now is it, is it a robbery? It wasn't a robbery, but it was a close fight and people was questioning if he really beat Loma or not. So, um, he has to do something big. So is he going to come to 140? Is he going to, you know, I, I think that for me, I would think that, you know, if he doesn't come up to 140, obviously I would love that fight, but if he doesn't, he would have to rematch Loma. You got to give Loma the rematch. Uh, if not, you got to go see Shakur or you got to go see, um, you know, Javante. Well, Javante got his own situation, but, you know, Shakur is there too. So um, he has to do something big next fight because, you know, if he if he goes out and, you know, fights, you know, uh, whoever, nobody, then, you know, people just going to gonna look at him a certain way. So, yeah, he I think he has to either come up to 140 and fight me, um, Loma rematch, uh, Shakur.
You know, Devin has maintained a good relationship with Eddie Hearn, who is now your promoter um, over mm-hmm. at Matchroom. Have you discussed how realistic that might be with Eddie, you know, a, a matchup with you and Devin Haney? Uh, well, yeah, when I met with Eddie the first time, he said yeah, that, that that could be a possibility. You know, he was like, yeah, obviously Devin is at 35. He's still got to take care of business. But after that, you know, he might be coming to 140, and then that could be a fight for me. So, yeah, I, that already came out of his mouth already. He told me that way before. So I guess he, you know, he already put those things, he already put those <laughs> puzzle pieces together. Just speaks it into existence. Uh, right. the, the last thing I want to ask you, readers, is like, you are now that you are affiliated with Matchroom, you've got, you know, the people behind you that you need going into this stage of, mm-hmm. of your career. Uh, there are options out there for you. If I give you these three names that are out there, Teofimo Lopez, Devin Haney, and Subriel Matias, if you could rank them in order of the guys you'd like to face, how would you rank them? Oh, man. It's, uh, that's, that's good. Um, Probably, I would probably want to fight Teo first. Teo. Definitely Teo first. Teo, just, he got a belt at 140. Um, you know, it's a big fight. He got a belt at 140. Devin, too. Devin is, you know, he's coming up, but he has a big name. That'll be big money. And, then, and of course, um, Matias, because he has a belt, too. So, if I can get those three, that'll be, man, that'll be perfect. Does a rematch with Josh Taylor have any appeal to you anymore now that Taylor's lost to Lopez? Yes, yeah, still. I still want it. That's something I still want, <laughs> honestly. Listen, I, I still want to fight people. I, I mean, I... I Broner just fight the other night. He just fought the other night. And I still wanted to fight Broner, you know, because that's somebody I want to fight for years. Obviously, you know, he don't, you know, he didn't look that good, but that's somebody I want to fight for years. Josh Taylor is somebody I still want to fight. So, you know, I don't care if he loses 10 more times. It's somebody I still want to fight. I just like, I have to get that, you know, same thing with the Broner thing. So, you know, I know people look at it like, oh, he's this, he's that, but that's still somebody that I personally want to fight myself. So, you know, I, I still, for me, yeah, I definitely still do want to fight Josh. It's got to be pretty exciting for you at this point. Um, you're beginning with Zaria, but, like, we just talked about, like, seven or eight guys. And, you know, these guys got to fight each other. There's no choice. And that's what you've right. been calling for mm-hmm. since, you know, 2019. You've been looking to get all these guys in the ring. Like, is it an exciting time in your mind to to be in this position? It's definitely exciting. You know, it's, it's real, you, you, like, it's so exciting that I can't let it get to me. That's the thing. It's really, really exciting. I just can't let it, all right, can't let it creep my mind because after, you know, I still have to, Saturday night, I still have to fight. So after that, then, you know, I think I'm, maybe things start creeping in my mind. But right now, it's just like, yeah, all those things are out there. But I still have to stay focused on the task at hand. You know, I still have somebody in front of me. I still have to get past him. And, you know, for me, I think the, the fight is going to be harder than most people say just because, People say it's gonna be easier. That's why. So in me, my in my mind, I have to, you know, I have to make it harder than what people say because you know people think it's gonna be easy fighting. It's the you know, fight is never easy. So I have to get past that first, and then after that, I can, you know, um, then I can think about the other stuff. Well, Regis Progre, Rifle Regis, the Crescent City <laughs> Crusher, Rubaru, whatever Hell, you want, whatever that. you want, call him. <laughs> He's back on Saturday against Danielito Zaria live on DAZN, the Smoothie King Center in his hometown of New Orleans. Rage is always good to catch up, man, and we will see you uh, on Saturday night. Yeah, see you Saturday. All right, time now for this week's picks and one big fight this weekend that is down in New Orleans where Regis Progre will defend his 140-pound title against Danielito Zaria. Progre is a big-time favorite in this one. Minus 1,600 
for Regis Prograde. That is uh, not a number you can make a lot of money on, but I'm pretty confident in Regis Prograde winning. Uh, he's fighting in his hometown. He's relatively sharp, you know, coming off a win over Jose Zapata late last year. So I like Prograde's chances against Daniel Lito Zaria. I do think it's going to be a firefight, though. Zaria's got some real power, and we know Prograde has power, and he has it at the highest level. So if you want to try to make a little more money, go with Regis Progre by knockout or technical knockout. That is at minus 380 right now over at FanDuel. Still not great odds, but a lot better than the minus 1600. So I'm taking Regis Progre to win and Regis Progre to win by knockout. I'm getting back on track after Teofimo Lopez killed me. Helped himself, but killed me with the bet last weekend. But Regis Progre to win, Regis Progre to win by knockout. Those are my picks for the week. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Chris Algieri and Regis Progray for joining the show. As always, subscribe, rate, review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download podcasts. And I'll see you next week. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.